Thank you, Rebecca. It's been a long time since I've heard you sing. The Cars were members here for a number of years and got out of God's will and moved to Virginia and took their kids with them. <laughs> They're in our prayer chapel under backslidden. When they get right with God, they'll come back where they belong, but uh, it's good to hear you sing. Well, there's a big movie out. By the way, there's Ron and Claudia. I've got something for you when church is over tonight. I've got something, and I've shown it to the staff, and staff, would you not agree? It will be a blessing, won't it? That's, it will bless them. So after church is over, I'm glad to see you in church on Sunday night for a change. That's good. That's good. There's a big movie out called The Prince of Egypt. Pretty phenomenal movie, and the fact that the producers of the movie, primarily Steven Spielberg, all three of them Jewish by faith, Steven Spielberg known for his deliverer-type movies and Schindler's List and Amistad, chose to do their first animated feature at DreamWorks on the life of Moses might also interest you to know that they are already working on Noah and projecting work on Abraham and on David. Isn't it amazing that one of the things we're so fearful of, God might use to get people's attention. In fact, the movie, The Prince of Egypt, begins with a note at the front that was put there at the request of Southern Baptists, primarily Paige Patterson. He said, would you please put a disclaimer at the front and they said, yes, we will. And if you've seen the movie, at the front of the movie, it simply says, this is a story, an enhanced story of the life of Moses. For the real story, read Exodus chapters 1 through 20. Can you imagine the millions and millions and millions of people who are leaving a movie theater and going, now where is that Gideon's Bible that we stole out of that hotel? <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg said this, he is a practicing Jew who has, since the making of this movie, returned to weekly involvement in his local synagogue. He said, from the first day we decided to make the movie, we knew it was not our story to tell, it was God's. Walt Disney took characters from classic literature and told the story the way he wanted to tell it. Snow White lives happily ever after. Moses' life isn't that simple. The story of Moses is not a fairy tale. Moses is called in this movie the Prince of Egypt, but in fact the central character in the book of Exodus is God. It is not Moses. It is God who is at the forefront and God who Moses gives his allegiance to. And while he is the Prince of Egypt, because he was raised in Pharaoh's home, the real hero of this story is the king of kings. And in this account in the book of Exodus, we find something very incredible because Exodus is to the Old Testament what the Gospels are to the New Testament. It is a story of redemption, a story of freedom and deliverance, and nearly 20 Psalms refer to the Exodus. Many of the New Testament writers refer to the Exodus. When you see in the New Testament words like redemption, and deliverance and bondage and freedom and ransom. You are reading words that they tie back 
to the Exodus event, to the deliverance event. It is the pivotal event of the Old Testament. It is to the Old Testament Hebrews what the resurrection is to those of us who live by New Testament faith. You notice in your uh, notes and outline, Exodus 1 through chapter 7 and verse 7, he's the Lord of history. In Exodus 7, verse 8 through 18, verse 27, he's the Lord of creation. In chapter 19 through chapter 24, he's the Lord of man. And in chapter 25 through chapter 40, he is the Lord of worship. I must admit that this is, after a week of studying the life of Moses, more than I have ever studied it. This has been the most difficult series of messages for me to develop because I didn't know where to get a handle on it and I didn't know really where to start, stop, what to leave out, what to talk about, what not to talk about, and how to make it a concise study and hopefully interesting, but I'll tell you what it's done for me. The study this past week has done this for me. It's made me look at myself in the spiritual mirror and ask this question. Do I believe in the God who still does miracles? Do I believe in a God who is so powerful that he doesn't just, we just don't talk about stories about the Red Sea, he actually did it. And the more critical question is, is that God, that miracle-working God that Moses believed in when everybody else said, we can't do this, and Moses stood and said, we will do this, we can't do that. Is that God my God? Or have I settled in my own personal life for a watered-down version of the awesome God of Scripture? Have I tried to explain Him so much that I can't faith him on a daily basis? Do I still believe that he does awesome things? Because you see, the key is not that Moses had great faith, it's that he had faith in a great God. And you and I need to understand that the God that is revealed in Exodus is just a partial revelation of the God who was revealed to us in Christ Jesus in the gospel. And whatever God could do miraculously in the Old Testament. What he did at the resurrection and what he has done with our sin is the greatest deliverance story that has ever been written. And so we go back to the first story of the deliverance. He is the great emancipator, if you will, of Israel. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 1, he is called a man of God. When you study the life of Moses, it's interesting when you realize that of all the people that could have been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. There was Moses. Not Noah, not David, not Solomon, but Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, come together to reveal the Son of God. Now, I know Moses, Joel and I were talking just for a minute down here as the service was going, and I know Moses didn't get to step in the promised land, but I guarantee you he didn't worry about it after he got to stand with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so I want us to look at the people who refused to die, and let's begin reading in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 5. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation 
But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became increased exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now there's a life lesson there. We talked about it a little bit this morning. And that is people have short memories. This Pharaoh, this king, had forgotten some things that he should have remembered. But it saved him a lot of heartache. Now in the Hebrew text, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1 begins with the word and. The reason it begins that way is because Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. It just picks up and all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. It's just a continuation of what you would be doing if you were reading through the Bible. One just picks up where the other one ends. Now, it, it, what you see here is turn back to Genesis 46. Genesis 46 and verse 3. Because what God did is God took the people to Egypt, and you remember why he took them there. He took them there to spare them from a famine. And God took them to Egypt, Genesis 46 and verse 3. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Now here's what happened. They went in with 70 plus Joseph who was already in Egypt. They came out with 2 million. <laughs> now I, I would call that increasing greatly. They went in with 70 and came out with 2 million. 400 years later, there are 2 million people in this nation. God has made them a great nation. Now notice what he says in verse 8. A new king arose. Now that word new means one of a different kind. It, does, it doesn't mean that like there was a new president or a new king because the old one died. It means that this one was of a different kind. It also can mean one who follows a different set of principles. So this king ruled differently. He had a different way of thinking. He didn't think like the other pharaohs had thought. Who he is is not significant as much as the fact that he had a change in attitude toward God's people. And what happens is, we, whether we realize it or not, there are always kings coming on the scene who do not know Joseph. They come into your company and they take over and they do not know what you've done to make that company what it is. They go into churches and they don't take time to find out what the heritage is and they do not know Joseph. They don't remember, they don't know, they don't evaluate to find out what it is. There, there are always people who come along who do not know and who do not take the time to find out why Joseph is significant and why Joseph is supported. Now there's another life lesson here. Change is inevitable. I mean, if you're going to live, you're going to have to live with change. It's inevitable. There was a change. There arose a king that did not know Joseph. Now, apparently this king did not care about history. He didn't care about tradition. He didn't care about heritage. He did not care about the blessings that had come to the nation because of Joseph. After all, there wouldn't have been an Egypt if Joseph had not told the Pharaoh at that time to prepare for a famine. He didn't care about all his history. He wanted to rewrite history to his liking. And so plan A in verses 8 through 14, he tried to work them to death. 
He said, let's just work these people to death. There are too many of them. I'm worried that they would make allegiance with one of our enemies. I'm worried that they would take over. He became, listen, he became fearful of the very people that could help him. Kind of like some politicians now. Always running around worried about that crazy religious right, the only people who could help them. And they're worried about us. And we're the only people helping. And by the way, we're the only people praying for them. <laughs> the crazy fanatical religious right that just cares about life and people and families and things that are important, you know. So he tried to work them to death. He said, well, let's just make them work to death. Now, Alexander McLaren has a great statement. He says, if there is a dangerous class, the surest way to make them more dangerous is to treat them harshly. It was a blunder to make life bitter for hearts also were embittered, and the people were ripened for revolt, and notice, Gosham became less attractive. Here's what happened. He made life bitter for them, and all of a sudden, these Hebrews, who were settled down in Egypt, minding their own business, enjoying life, all of a sudden, they're starting to think, you know, it's not as much fun in Egypt as it used to be. Seems like God made us a promise somewhere that he was going to take us to our own land. You know, they would have never thought that if the Pharaoh hadn't made life hard on them. Oppression and persecution made them long more for the promises of God. Plan B, verses 15 through 21. He tried to kill all the male babies at birth. Now, what would have happened if he had done that? If he had done that, eventually there would have been no male Hebrews and the females would have intermarried with the Egyptians and the races would have been mingled between the Egyptians and the Hebrews and guess what would have happened? There would have been no line of Abraham for Messiah to come through. So guess what Pharaoh's plan was? Pharaoh's plan was satanic because he wanted to eliminate the Hebrew people so that Messiah could not come. See, not just at the time of Jesus, but all the way back at the time of Moses, he was trying to destroy what God's plan was for the redemption of man. Plan C... This is an interesting one in verse 22. Make killing babies the law of the land. For the last 20 plus years, America has been practicing the rule of Pharaoh. Let's kill babies and let's make it the law of the land. See any connections there with Sanctity of Life Sunday coming up? And so, a nation either protects good or it protects evil, but it will never protect both. A nation will protect good or it will protect evil, but it will never protect both. Now, Satan is using Pharaoh to oppose the word of God and to oppose the work of God, and, and here's what he's trying to do. I just tried to trace this briefly through here. The first thing he tried to do was corrupt the human race in Genesis chapter 6 at the time of Noah. Then he tried to eliminate the Jewish race in Egypt. He tried to use Saul to kill David. And then he tried to kill the Christ child through Herod's decree. All the time, Satan is doing one thing. Satan is either mastering or he is murdering. When you look at the activities of our enemy, whether it's through Pharaoh or any other way, he is always working in one of two ways. He's either trying to master you in some area of your life, or he's murdering. He's trying to kill off God's people. 
and more people have died in this century for the cause of Christ in persecution than in any century in the history of Christianity in 2,000 years. In this time, when we talk about human rights and the freedom of people, more people have died in the last 100 years than all the other centuries for the cause of Christ. Satan is always trying to oppose God's plan. Now, Satan is like Pharaoh in that he is a taskmaster. I, I, I just began to kind of put my head together on this thing with Pharaoh, and, and I realized that, that Satan is a lot like a taskmaster. He wants to get us to work to build things we'll never enjoy and to do things that can never be ours. And you realize that one of the problems we have is that we've never realized that as long as you work for Pharaoh, you never have anything lasting and eternal. Only what you do for God is lasting and eternal. What you do for Pharaoh doesn't last. What you do for God lasts. And a lot of us spend our time and our energy and our lives trying to build pyramids and cities for Pharaoh only to find out that when life comes to its end, the only thing that lasts is the word of God and the souls of men. And Pharaoh was a taskmaster. He was putting them to work. Now, look at the providence of God in chapter 2. The birth of Moses is phenomenal. And if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, then you, you haven't read Exodus chapter 2. Because I'm convinced of this. Now, you can argue with me if you want to, and you have a right to be wrong. <clears throat> but I'm convinced that Moses was as safe in a basket in the Nile infested with crocodiles as he was in his mother's arms because God had a plan for Moses' life. I believe in the sovereignty of God that when God puts a plan together that you are safe in the middle of that plan. As long as you stay in the plan and you do what he tells you to do, you're safe. And God protected him in the Nile and the crocodiles. One of the reasons, by the way, and we'll see this in, in some other things in a couple of weeks, but one of the reasons why Pharaoh had the babies thrown into the Nile is because crocodiles were one of the gods that they worshipped, and he was telling them this is an act of acceptable worship to our gods to offer babies as sacrifices to our gods. So when you throw them in, you are pleasing the gods. Let's look at some things here. First of all, God is on the throne. There's something interesting in chapter 2 that I, I had to read it several times before I found it, but in, in chapter 2, you have to go to chapter 6 before you find out what Moses' mother's name was. All the characters in chapter 2 are anonymous. We do not know his sister. We don't know his brother. We don't know his mother's name. We don't know his father's name. Some of that you even learn in the New Testament. But we don't know the names of anybody in this story except Moses. Why? Because God is keeping everybody in the shadows so that he can be at the forefront. God is keeping everyone else off the scene so that he can paint the picture with his brush and with his hand the way he wants to. And he paints a very dark picture. Moses is born in a very, very depressing and dark time in you would have to think that the mother of Moses would have said, Lord, if you're going to let me have a baby, why did it have to be a boy? Why couldn't you have given me another girl? Why did my baby have to be born at this time and in these circumstances? But don't miss God's timing. At the very darkest hour in the life of Israel, God sent a deliverer. By the way, in the fullness of time, 
He sent Jesus, the deliverer. You know what the Lord loves to do? The Lord loves to show how strong he is when the enemy thinks he's at his strongest. The Lord sometimes just waits and sets up the devil. <laughs> so that when he thinks he's at his strongest and when he thinks he's played all his cards, then the Lord comes in and trumps him and says, no, I've got one better than you do. God's on the throne. Secondly, God can be trusted. This is real interesting that Moses came from the tribe of Levi. And at that time, the tribe of Levi was one of the most insignificant of all the tribes. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we see God's protection and God's provision, and God has protected this man from the lowest tribe. I mean, his mom and dad are nobodies among nobodies. But you know, when God decides to use a person, he doesn't need that person to get together a press kit. You see, God says our job is to walk by faith. His job is to put you in a place where he can use you. Vance Havner said, you learn that you never have to chase key men when you know the man who holds the keys. Francis Schaeffer had a better statement, I think. Francis Schaeffer said, there are no big people and no little people as far as God is concerned, only consecrated and unconsecrated people. Not big or little, but consecrated and unconsecrated. And here's the prince of Egypt from the bottom of the social ladder. But you know, God's never concerned about rank and file. He, he's not interested in where you came from. He, he's not impressed with your status or your position or your money. All God ever has looked for is your heart. You remember what he says and Paul says in Corinthians? Not many wise, not many noble, that no man should boast before the Lord. You know, Moses didn't have anything to boast of even when he was the son of Pharaoh because he knew where he came from. He knew that he was a Hebrew raised in Pharaoh's home. He knew that he was of the tribe of Levi. And he came to a point in his life where he forsook it all. The New Testament writer says he forsook the pleasures of sin to follow God. I love to read the Bible and do a little thinking, and, and you, you'll have to forgive me a little bit tonight. I've, I've just kind of chewed on this so much, but I, I had to use my sanctified imagination a little bit when I thought about the fact that when Pharaoh's daughter picked him up and then all the things happened with Miriam and, and Moses' mother raised him, that from Egypt, Moses got the best education he could possibly get. He learned mathematics. The Egyptians were very strong in mathematics. They were very strong in astronomy. He knew the leading technologies of the day were still in awe of the fact that they had the technology to build the pyramids like they did. He learned all those things. He learned astronomy. And you know what? The devil paid for all that. I mean, the devil tried to kill him, and then the devil ended up paying for his education. Kind of reminds me of the lottery. By the way, I meant to write Zell Miller a letter and thank him. Because if my kids stay in Georgia, all the devil's crowd's going to pay for their college education. They keep a B average. They don't keep a B average, they're going to pay for their beating. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's, uh, you know, it's funny. You know, I, th I think next time you go in a, in a convenience store or something, they're selling a lottery ticket, I think you ought to walk up to that guy and say, thanks, man. For what? For paying for my kids' college education. You're stupid enough to buy those things? I appreciate it. My kids are going to enjoy it. Huh? But here's what he got from his mother. 
He got a fear of God. He got an understanding of his heritage. She was hired to be his nurse, and she trained him and taught him, and she loved him, and she got paid to do it. Look at verse uh, 11. It's a big skip. Verses 1 and 2, he's, his birth, and he's in the basket. In verse 10, he goes to live with Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, that was probably when he was about three or four years old. In verse 11, now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out from his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now you know what happened. Moses went out the next day and thought his people would consider him a deliverer, and they just thought, well, you're going to kill us too. Moses' deliverance plan didn't quite work out the way he thought it was going to work out. Things didn't, didn't fall together the way he thought to, and all of a sudden he finds himself in the desert, and that brings us to the third point. God cares when you think he doesn't. He's killed this Egyptian. He's 40 years old. He's got a plan. He's got a dream. He's got everything in mind, and all of a sudden he's in the penalty box, for those of you who watch hockey. He's in the penalty box. His life is put on hold. I mean, he's ready to move in a position of power. He's ready to take control. He's ready to deliver his people. And now he's on the backside of the desert. And not only that, he becomes a shepherd. And the Egyptians hated shepherds. They thought they were the most worthless people in the world because they herded sheep, which were the most worthless animals in the world. They hated them. Here's a man who has sat beside Pharaoh and walked through the halls of the kingdom and has seen everything, and yet here he sits on the backside of the desert and he's a nobody among a bunch of nothings. And God's working out his life, although he doesn't think he does. You know why God put Moses in the desert? Because there are just some things you don't learn in the palace. There are lessons that you have to learn that you only learn on the backside of the desert. Now Moses got his education in the king's court, but he got his character in the desert. He learned a lot of leadership skills in the king's court, but he learned godly leadership in the desert. And he learned how to be a servant. And that's the first lesson I want you to see, because what God did in Moses in the desert was more important than what God would do through Moses in Egypt. You see, folks, if we would ever learn this one lesson, what God does in you is more important than what God does through you. It's not the size of your ministry or the size of your influence that matters. It's what God does in you that he is more concerned about than how many lives you touch. You let him take care of how many lives you touch. You just let him do the work in you. The first lesson that he learned in the desert is a lesson of humility and a servant heart. Now, you've got to know Moses would have been self-confident because of his upbringing. He thought he had it all together, but he didn't have the maturity to lead God's people, and so God had to put him in the desert. The second lesson he learned was a lesson of faith. God was working, but he was silent. Now, here's what you need to understand. As far as we know, God had never spoken one time to Moses until the burning bush. Now, he's done what he believes he's supposed to do. He's done what he's identified with his people. He's forsaken the pleasures of sin. He goes out in the desert. Okay, God, here I am. 
And for 14,600 days, God doesn't say one word. What would you have done if God had stayed silent for 14,600 days in your life? 40 years. Not a word from God. He was learning faith. The King James says he was on the back side of the desert. The Revised Standard says he's on the west side of the desert. Whether he's in the, you've got him in the west side story or the back side story, he's still in a bad place. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's isolated. He's alone. And that's one of the lessons we need to learn from the Prince of Egypt. How to live when we have to be alone. I don't know about you, but I, I kind of enjoy being busy. I, I can chill out for so long, and then I get a little antsy. I've got to go do something, you know. It's, and we live in a fast-paced world. I mean, you know, if the speed limit's 35, we've got to drive a little over that. You know, it's beat the time we made last time, and it's go here and go there and rush here and rush there. And Christians are just as guilty as, as the world is of just being busy and running from activity to activity and event to event and church event to church event. Here's what happens to us. We substitute going to church events for going to be with God. And we begin to worship our activity and we don't develop our spirituality. That's why I'm a little fearful, and I'll be careful how I say this, but I'm a little fearful about people who are always wanting another Bible study. Because my only question is, what did you do with the one you got this morning? When you went to Sunday school this morning, what difference is it going to make in your life this week? Because if it's not going to make any difference, maybe we ought to reteach it next Sunday. It's like the preacher who kept preaching the same sermon every Sunday, and after about four weeks, the deacons came to him and said, you know, when are you going to preach a different message? He said, when you start doing what I said in the first one. You see, sometimes we take activity and going to Bible studies and going to church events and concerts and all those kind of things, we take that and we say, oh, that must mean we're spiritual. It could mean you're as dry as dust inside. You just got a head full of knowledge and no heart commitments. And you see, the lesson of faith is I have to learn to not build my foundation on events at church, but my foundation is built on my relationship with Christ. When it's just me and the Lord, just by ourselves, and I shut up long enough that he can start talking. And for a lot of us, that's hard to do. Because our idea of prayer is we do all the talking. God's idea of prayer is, why don't you be quiet and let me do some? Why don't you let me tell you what my will is on earth as it is in heaven, and then you can talk to me about it. But you see, we don't want to listen. We don't want to be that still. And Moses had time in the wilderness. It was not his choice, but it was his ultimate blessing because everything he learned in the wilderness, he got to apply on down the road. Do you realize that if Moses hadn't had 40 years in the wilderness alone, he would have never survived 40 years in the wilderness with all those people. He had to have 40 years to prepare for what he was going to have to put up with. And here he is, blessed of God, but all the props are removed, and he's had time alone with God. And I tell you, you want to talk about a guy who said, Lord, I need more time with you. He got it. But you know, folks, time alone with God is not a law. 
It's love. Sometimes we are so busy, we say, Lord, I just don't have time to spend with you. Be careful when you say that, because the Lord may say, well, I can put you in a position where all you have is time. Lord, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to do that. And God said, well, I can give you a situation where all you have is time. I can take your job away from you. I can take your health away from you. And if you're just laying on your back, you've got all the time in the world at this part to me. So be careful what you tell God you don't have time to do because you're so busy. Didn't Roger say the first year on the road, you're too busy for God, you're too busy? And you see, we excuse it by saying, well, I'm not too busy for God because I go to church. No, when you're too busy for God, you and God, you're too busy. There's a lesson, thirdly, of obedience. And I'll just briefly comment on this one. This lesson is very simple. When God does speak, Moses does not say, where in the world have you been? What does Moses say? He says, who am I? I mean, you come to chapter 3 and God speaks to him and he, he doesn't say, Lord, you know, <clears throat> I tell you what, I've gone through 15 batteries in this watch waiting on you. Where have you been? You send me out here, you don't talk to me, I don't get any mail, I don't get any email, there's no facts, there's nothing coming across from you, Lord. I don't even have a Gideon Bible out here, we haven't put it together yet because I'm not through with the first five books. What is the deal? No, he learns a lesson in obedience. He says, who am I? Oh, now that you've spoken, Lord, I realize who I am. I realize whose presence I'm in. Fourthly, there's a lesson of perspective. When Moses killed the Egyptian, he thought he was doing right, but he was short-sighted. Paul says in Romans, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. You know, the, the world has a way of infringing on our lives and pushing us in and telling us to compromise and, and, and saying, you can shave off your commitment in this area and, and you can compromise over here and you can justify this and you can justify that. And it's imperceptive. We don't see it happening to us. Now, I'm, I'm nearsighted, which I never have understood why they do that, but nearsighted, you can't see things far off. Farsighted, you can't see things up close. Bifocals and trifocals just means you're getting older. But I'm nearsighted. My eyes are reaching that point where they're beginning to change, and eventually I'll have to wear a contact to see up close and a contact to see far away, and then I'll probably walk around like this all the time. But you know what happens to my vision is I don't notice when it's changing, but... I have a good doctor who's a member of this church and he makes me come in for appointments when I've had my contacts for so long because he doesn't let me just keep getting contacts over and over and over again and not going in for an eye exam. So I go in for an eye exam. He says, how you doing? Oh, good, good, good. How your eyes? Oh, they're doing pretty good. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Okay, let's just check it out here. He puts that big monstrosity in front of you, you know? And he says, okay, let's do it. And you hear those little things and you're just praying. Oh, God, I hope I remember the chart from last time. And he says, you know, what's that, what's that first row? Uh, Z, R, 3, W, okay, let's try another one. You see, I didn't notice my eyes 
were not as good as they used to be until I had something in front of me that showed me that my eyes were out of focus. And I needed an expert who could evaluate in the true light of what was 2020 vision, not in what I thought 2020 vision was. And you see, the lesson in perspective is this. If you don't get in this word, and if you don't spend time in this book, you begin to think you're doing okay, and you begin to justify some things in your life, and you begin to compromise areas of your life, and you begin to say, hey, that's not a problem, that's not a big deal. But only when you get in this word and you start to read it, and the word becomes clear to you and say, boy, you know what? I think God's trying to tell me something. See, 40 years in the desert, Moses learned that what he thought he saw as God's will wasn't the way God wanted to do it. God had a different plan and God had a different means. And you and I have a tendency to be nearsighted. We just see right now in this moment and we don't see things a long way off and we have to come under the scrutiny of the Word of God and the Word of God has to judge us and evaluate us and it has to tell us there's a little bit of corrective work that we need to do here in your spiritual vision. C.S. Lewis made a great statement on his self-examination before he was saved. He said, I found what appalled me, a zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name is Legion. You know how to tell if you've lost perspective? How long's it been since you were at the altar in a church service? How long's it been since you wept over your sin? How long's it been since you were burdened about lost people in Albany, Georgia? How long has it been since you said, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong, and I confess, and I ask you to forgive me? You see, only when we're in the word for ourselves do we get to that point because sometimes we can see what somebody else is teaching us or preaching to us. We say, yeah, that's not for me, that's for somebody else. But when you get in it for yourself, you've got to either say God's a liar or God's telling the truth and his vision corrects you. And he says, now focus in right here, see this right here. That's why you just don't read the parts of the Bible you want to read, you read all of it because in all of it, in the full, whole counsel of God, you see the truth. Lesson number five. A lesson on sensitivity to the Lord. <clears throat> now, this is where we'll pick up next week, but I'll make just a couple of brief statements and then we're going to pray. Moses learned something about being sensitive to the Lord. You see, there was a bush that was burning, chapter 3, but it wasn't being consumed. Bushes burning were no uncommon thing in that time. And out in the wilderness, I mean, they would spark and they would burn and they'd be destroyed, but this one wasn't consumed. And he turned aside to see what it was and what that was about. You know, I'm afraid that for a lot of Christians, there could be 200 bushes burning, and we're going so fast, we'd never stop to see what it was. Here's, here's for me, okay? It may not be for you, but it is for me. I've missed some burning bush moments in my life because I was too busy doing church work and not busy enough with God. And some of you, if you're honest, 
there have been moments when you were in such a hurry that you missed a burning bush. And if you go back and evaluate your life, you say, oh, man. Right back there, God was trying to tell me something back there. God, God was trying to speak to me back there. God, God got my attention and I didn't listen right, right there. And there was a burning bush moment. And we missed it. You know, there are not many burning bush moments. There was only one in Moses' life, and there will be very few in your life. And if we miss them, we miss them to our own detriment. You know why I think we miss burning bushes? I think we miss burning bushes because basically we have given up on God speaking to us. Oh, God speaks to Billy Graham. God speaks to John Phillips, and God spoke to Layman Strauss, and God speaks to Ron Dunn. God speaks to my Sunday school teacher, but God doesn't speak to me. Oh, yes, he does. But you see, you've got to be listening, because most of the time when he's speaking, he's not shouting. It's a still, small voice. And he's just trying to pull you to the side long enough to say, Come in, we need to talk for a minute. There's some things we need to share here. And we miss those because we're busy doing things for God, but not sensitive to God. There's a sign in the Australian outback. I think it's very appropriate. It's on a muddy road with deep ruts, and it says this, Choose your rut carefully. You will be in it for the next 30 miles. I think all of us, if we were honest, if we are in the first part of this year, would have to admit we've chosen some ruts. Buying a house, getting our career started, starting a family, doing our work, playing our games, involved in our hobbies, planning for our retirement, planning for our future, and it's a rut, and we're so entrenched in it, and we've chosen it so methodically that even if there was a burning bush on a side road, we're so entrenched in that rut, we can't get out of it and go hear what God has to say. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need a Pharaoh who will oppress us as God's people and persecute us so that we will cry out to God to be delivered from our ruts and brick-making so that maybe one day before we die, we will wake up and say, I must turn aside and see what this is that God is doing. Would you pray with me, please? Let me ask you to just ask the Lord right now three questions. Question number one, Lord, am I where you want me to be? Spiritually. I'm talking about in your spiritual life. 
Are you willing right now to ask the Lord, Lord, am I where you want me to be? Stop long enough and ask God, God, are you pleased with where I am spiritually? Is my life on a track that is pleasing with you? Second question. Lord, am I giving my life to the right things? Don Linscott said it so well during our fundraising. You know, you spend your life. It's like currency. Are you spending your life giving your life to the right things? I mean, if you died this week, what would people remember about you that you spent your life doing? that you gave your life to? What would they say about you? What would they remember about you? Third question. Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? Lord, am I where you want me to be? Am I giving my life to the right things and am I doing what you want me to do? You see, the only way you're really going to be able to answer that question is to get out of your rut long enough to turn aside and see that God is waiting for you by that Bible that you don't open enough in that prayer closet that you don't visit enough. That God is desperately longing for fellowship with you to speak to you, to share with you, to love you, to confront you, to discipline you, to challenge you, to stretch you. But you're going to have to force the direction of your life out of that rut because you're stuck in it as long as you're just doing the same thing you're doing right now. You're going to have to stop and get out and go find out what it is that God's doing. I had to ask myself this week, do I really believe in that God? The God who wants to get me out of the ruts, the God who sometimes puts me on the backside of the desert. The God who teaches me in ways that I would rather not learn. The God who gives me perspective when I would like to see through my own rose-colored glasses the way life is and not see it the way God sees it. We're glad that you have joined us for the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. That's the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany, Georgia, zip code 31707.
If you would like a videotape of our worship celebration, kindly enclose $10 with your order. Or if you would like an audio cassette of our pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your complete name, address, and telephone number. And ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to visit with us here at Sherwood. And we hope that you'll join us again next week at this time for the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. Start the new year off right at Sherwood Christian Academy. The academics are exceptional with a low